0: Romans Romans 3:21 But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a propitiation. NIV makes sacrifice of atonement. I went to an NIV Bible primarily because it had paragraphs. And I was taught methodical Bible study. I don't like it for being literal. It's not literal. That's why the ESV, New American Standard versions are more literal. I prefer those when I really want to know exact meaning. So the word for sacrifice of atonement is literally the word halasmas, propitiation. Kind of nice sounding, propitiation. So he offered, presented him, God the Father presented Christ "...as a propitiation through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus." Now, take this little outline here, and I want to walk you through it, okay? And the idea is I want you to understand this concept of what did the cross accomplish. When I was in seminary, we had to read a book that expounded 14 things accomplished when Christ died. I loved it. My prof in soteriology said, I could give you 22 things. I thought that was great. And then Piper wrote a book on the passion of Christ in which he lists 50 things accomplished when Christ died on the cross. So many things were done that day he said, it is finished. He was still alive when he said it is finished, but he really said it is paid in full. And it was just moments later that he dismissed his spirit and died. But he knew at the point, at the point, that the redemption propitiation contract with God was completed. At that point, he said, it is finished. It is paid in full. The sacrifice has been made. Well... I want to explain some words to you. We use a lot of Christian shorthand talk. When we say the cross, understand there were three crosses on Golgotha. Uh, Nothing happened on the other two crosses. The cross as a piece of wood, as a crucifix, didn't do anything. But it's shorthand. It's shorthand for the death of Christ as your substitute for sin. That's what we mean by the cross. And anyone that is Christ-centered is cross-centered. You can never be cross-centered without being Christ-centered. Christ-centered means I celebrate the violent death of the Son of God for my sins on the cross. That's what we mean. Then we come to this word, the blood. What do we mean by the blood? We can be preoccupied with blood plasma, bleeding. But blood uh, was used in the Bible from Leviticus on. And you shall make atonement by the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood, Leviticus 17, 11. And the shedding of blood makes atonement. What we're saying by the term blood, blood referred to dying violently. Now you must get this. Dying violently in order to atone or to cover sin. Now, what do I mean by that? A sick lamb was never, never could be offered. Uh, a lamb that would just go out and die in the wilderness of some sheep disease could never be used for atoning. If Christ had come for us and had died of tuberculosis before the cross, him just dying would not have atoned for our sins. Do you understand that? It was a violent death, the slitting of the throat of a lamb, His life was taken from him under the wrath of God, under the sentence for our sins. So it was a life given in death, violently under the hand of God. So that's when we say the blood saves. What do I mean by that? Blood plasma? Not blood plasma. The life of Christ given under the hand of God, dying a violent death, to be my substitute for my sin. So the blood isn't some mystical voodoo kind of stuff. And plasma. It's shorthand for the work of Christ on the cross. Dying a violent death under the wrath of God. Then the word substitution. Uh, Christ died for my sins. He died in my place. And we add the word because we're in a camp known as penal substitution. Substitution. That sin is always brings a liability, brings punishment. And so we understand the death of Christ as a substitute was under the penalty of God. God said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. So when Christ is on the cross, he is bearing divine penalty, do my sin, but as my substitute. So he's representing me in his death. So he's my divine substitute. Now, let's, uh, in the way of introduction, say some things. Uh, I heard a lecture recently by Dr. D.A. Carson, Trinity Seminary. He said this, having been lecturing on campuses now for over 30 years as an apologist and a debater with atheists and others who oppose Christianity, he said, the most debated subject on the campus today... It's not arguments for the resurrection, not arguments for the death of Christ, but this is the number one debated subject. What is sin? Is there any such thing as sin? Can anything be wrong? Uh, And when you don't have a, a correct biblical view of sin... Their response is this. Oh, man, this cross stuff, isn't that an overkill? You mean he had to die for me sleeping with this chick in the dorm? Hey, come on. Is God a killjoy? That shouldn't bother him. Where's that sin? Where's smoking a little weed sin? Where's this, you know, nice kid, but the lifestyle, this shouldn't bother God. It sure should not demand a sacrifice. This is not that bad. Sin, I, I feel kind of at home with it. And sinners do feel at home with sin. And and the big issue, and then if you want to get sophisticated and philosophical, who says anything's wrong? Who is the lawgiver? Just because you say it's wrong, Dad, doesn't make it wrong. You and mom did things that were wrong. Who says it's wrong? Well, if you don't acknowledge a divine law out there that's being broken and that there's nothing up there in heaven but a giant Santa Claus that's nice and good and wants me to have everything I want and can never be offended anyway because he cannot be offended. He's a nice God. We've made him into our own image. Instead, there cannot be a God up there that has wrath There couldn't be a God up there that could be angry when he's disobeyed. There could not be a God up there that says, this will lead to death, for the wages of sin is death. Can't be that. We've already rejected the biblical. This is a pagan to think of the gods being angry. So we come along and say, well, that's wrong for you. It's not wrong for me. And so the whole debate centers around what is sin? Who determines what is sin? Does sin bother God? On and on. And you see, you can never appreciate the cross unless you know how offensive sin is to a holy, righteous, pure God. Disobedience to sovereignty makes him angry at the offender. And we'll be looking at that. Uh, if you raise children, you know something about this. You know, if I, if I yell to the children, come, come to dinner, and, and uh, let's say Deborah and Rebecca get into an argument over whether come is a verb or a noun, uh, I'm going to judge them on whether they obeyed. I don't care if they know the grammar. Did you obey? I don't want to obey you, Dad. I I just kind of go on how I feel, and I don't feel in a compliant mood today. Well, in my home, I had different feelings that moved in that brought punishment because I'm pre-Spock. I'm Bible. And I already know they're depraved, and it's my fault because I passed on my nature, just like your kids. And so it brings consequences. Obey me. How much more a righteous lawgiver when he hands down the Ten Commandments and all these rules of how to treat a neighbor, how to treat God, so this matter of sin is the big debate. A big issue then comes to the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? Well, we would simply say it is the righteous response of God towards sin and disobedience. It makes him angry. It displeases him. And we'll be looking at that some more. Four things. Four things that man needs. He deserves to die for the penalty of sin. So he needs to substitute. He deserves to die. And if he doesn't die, who will die in his place? So we have verses that Christ says, I came to die for your sins. Who pair? On behalf of, I came to die, auntie, in place of you. I come to die for your sins. My need for a substitute is met in Christ. Uh, We deserve to bear God's wrath against us, his outrage. Thus, I need someone to propitiate God, and we'll develop that. Thirdly, uh, we are separated from God by our sin. Uh, it's like a living divorce we've gone our separate ways and so i need someone to reconcile our relationship in second corinthians 5 christ came to reconcile us to god and he's commissioned us as his ambassadors to preach you can be reconciled you can be restored in your relationship with god just come to christ he's the great reconciler and then finally we're in bondage to sin how do we get out? And this is the great work of redemption on the cross. So if we had time, we'd look at all four things. My substitute, my reconciler, my redeemer. But I just want us to delve a little bit more into what does it mean when it says, He is the propitiation for my sins. What does that word mean? I want us just to look at it. Um, Let me give you the pagan meaning. Uh, The pagan meaning of this word, it's why some men say it's an archaic word. It doesn't have any relationship to God. The pagan concept was this. The gods are moody, capricious, and unpredictable, and you don't know what they're liable to do any moment. So you've got to keep offering them sacrifices, and they were really bribes to keep God in a good mood, the gods, the many gods. Because they believed there was a God for fertility, a God for crops, a God for children, a God for animals, many gods, many gods. And you see this in uh, restaurants where you have people worshiping different gods. They're putting out food, putting out uh, different things. We've got to keep the gods pleased. You've got to keep them satisfied because they're moody. They may break out. And if we have drought, it's because the gods are angry. Uh, If uh, we have infertility and the wife can't have children, the gods are angry. What have we done to offend them? And so the whole pagan concept was, we'll even offer our firstborn sons and our firstborn daughters anything to get the gods in a good enough frame of mind to bless us because you don't know when they're liable to strike out. So it really was, the whole worship system was a form of bribing the deities in the heavens to be good to you. So always bribing God, Uh, these irritable gods. Packer says they were appeasing celestial bad tempers. That was a regular part of life. You wake up every morning, I wonder what mood my God's in today. I wonder what mood my God's in. I wonder if he's irritable today. I wonder if he'll give us rain. I wonder if he'll bless us. Here's some sacrifice. Here's some sacrifice. Please, please be good to me. Now, let me ask you this. When's the last time you woke up and you thought you woke up to an angry God? See, our God is not moody. Our God is constantly good. He doesn't have to be gotten into a good mood. He's blessed all the time. Matter of fact, he says he's happy all the time. God wakes up happy every day. By the way, he never did sleep. God's constant mood is happy. His anger is the exception. That's his momentary word. His loving kindness is forever. His wrath is but for a moment. That's the exception. Well, uh, so the pagan world had this whole concept of uh, you got to uh, get him in a good mood. Uh, the gods are always angry. And so when we come along and this word is used in the New Testament four times, Hebrews 2.17, 1 John two two, First John 4.10, Romans 3.25, four times only. Uh, what What in the world are we using a word like this? This is the meaning of the word, biblically. It meant to avert or to uh, do that which can deliver you from divine wrath. And they got in a debate in England, had a Greek New Testament scholar by the name of Dodd, who said its only usage is expiation, which means to expunge sin. And that's true. It's there. It's part of the atonement. It's in that word category. But what men like Leon Morris and other men have stood up and J.I. Packer said, it's not only to expunge the sin we did, it is to do something to the God we offended. Sin does not just need to be forgiven. It's like this. Uh, I'm sorry I killed your son. I'm sorry I stole your property. It's not enough that you give me my property back plus 20%, as the law said. If you ever steal something, you give it back plus 20%. That's compensation. But in sin, hear me. We break more than commandments. We sin against a person. And the person of God was offended by our sin. So much he brought a universal flood. So much that he brought his son. That he said, who is going to do anything to avenge my anger and just wrath against you and your crimes? Want is expungent. Expiation is the big word. What is the one that addresses the anger and wrath of God about my sin? And that is the word propitiation, the Godward aspect that because of what was done on the cross, that which angered God and made God wrathful justly against my sin, because I sinned against his holiness, against his wonderful character, and he has a right to be angry. This averts that divine wrath. And this is the very context of Romans 3. Three chapters he shows us man's a sinner. Man is under the wrath of God for Romans 1.18. God says, my wrath is so strong, I'm giving up great parts of the human race. I'm turning them over. I'm giving them up. I'm giving them up. I'm giving them up. They want to live like animals. They want to do this. They want to do that. I'm giving you up. I'm giving you up. I won't bother you. I'll let you die in your sins. But he carries on chapter 2. We are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Romans 2, 5. Romans 3, 14 through 19. We have 14 counts of guilt that the whole race is guilty. We've all gone our own way. And then he comes to chapter 3. The race is guilty. Their mouths have been hushed. You cannot, you cannot sell God that you're good enough to go to heaven on your own. So what does he say? God did something in Christ in his death. God did something freely for us. He brought Christ who through his violent death not only bought us out from sin, but he propitiated God the Father so that God now, hear this, He enables God to be just or righteous, just is the Latin word. He enables God to be just, watch now, while justifying the sinner. Other words, he enables God to keep his character of being righteous while God is declaring the unrighteous sinners that we are to be right now in his sight. How can this be? How can God tell a sinner, you're right in my sight? How can I say you're justified? Because the Son, in His violent death on the cross, did something to purchase the forgiveness and the acceptance of God for the guilty so that the judge of the universe can say, I declare you to be just in my sight on the basis of not your merits, Not on the basis of your good works, but on the basis of what my son did for you on the cross. This is the core of the gospel. How can God forgive guilty sinners and remain holy himself? Now, he said in Hebrews 2.17, as you see in your outline here, let me give you these points here. Propitiation enables God to justify sinners. Sinners do the wrath of God. Two, propitiation was the reason for the incarnation of Christ. He said, I became a man that I might die for men. Three, propitiation is the basis for Christ's heavenly ministry. Turn with me to another place. 1 John 2. 1 John Turn there. I'm listening. I'm listening for paper. I'm getting deafer. Could turn. Take a Bible and just shake the leaves. I'm a Bible preacher that says your finger ought to be on the text at all times, practically. We are not about man-made religion. We are here trying to follow what this book says, right? Look what he says, First John 2. Two one, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not even sin one time. That's the idea. The Greek text. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Now, how does this make sense? Now, come on. Look at this. I sin. I mean, I, I, I stole the wallet, let's say. Your wallet, that's sin. Spirit of God starts working on me. Now, I must say this. God doesn't want to just forgive me. He also wants me to return the wallet. I just stole a million in drug money. I'm now saved. Should I give the tithe off of it? It'd be nice if you'd get rid of it, return what you stole. So we've got to be sure of that. But I got a problem. I stole it. And I come to God. Father, I stole what was mine. I confess it. I was wrong. If that's all we had, if that's all we had, under the law it said cut off his hand the law would say a lot of other things but at that moment if you read the verse and you're not reading it yet the verse says Christ stands up to defend me how can he defend me for sinning is he for sin look We have one who speaks to who? The Father. Killing Father. Is that what he says? In our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now that's amazing. How can he do this? He is the propitiation. For our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now watch what 1, nine, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is merciful and gracious and will forgive us our sins. Is that what yours says? He is what? And what's this other word, just? Why would just be there? God doesn't forgive you your sin on the basis of mercy and grace. He does it on the basis of justice. How can this be? Because, verse 2, the Son is saying, Father, remember this sinner, this sinning saint that just confessed their sin, remember that my violent death on the cross was to satisfy your wrath... Against any punishment, you need to mete out on them now. You've already meted it out on me on the cross. I have propitiated you. And on the basis of the cross, forgive them of that sin done in 2010. And God is just to forgive you when you confess your sin. The transaction for the payment of it has already transpired. Do you get it? You ought to grow up. Oh, some of you are so spoiled. You've been hearing the word around here. You, you don't even know what's being said. You're just hoping you get a donut pretty soon. I grew up in a camp that I lost my salvation a couple times a year if I listened to everything that was preached to me. If, if I sinned, any, I gave up living from the Lord because after I was saved for maybe... Uh, a month I'd slip and cuss once in a while I'd slip and do some of the sins from the past and my understanding was I had to start all over again that I must be a hypocrite I must not have really been saved so I just threw in the towel I'm not going to be a hypocrite I, I just backslide because I'm not overcoming sin nobody showed me First John 1 9 nobody showed me First John 2, 2, that when I'm sinning, when I'm sinning, Christ is pleading to the Father, Father, forgive them. He's not endorsing my sin. He's saying, I paid an awesome price on a cross outside the city limits of Jerusalem for that very sin. Do not charge it to him. You charged it to me. This is gospel. This is what enables us to be saved continually, even when we're failing. Even when we're not perfect. See, the pressure on us Christians is, you've got to live perfect. Oh, I just want to cuss right now. Oh, what? You know. I won't. But I do know He'd forgive me if I confessed it. But I don't sin that grace may abound. But to know that truth, that if I sin today, instead of my salvation being canceled or me being put on hold, my, I have one on duty 24 hours a day that begins to plead to the Father. All I'm saying, Father, is it was paid for. It was paid for. That's why they're still saved. Now look at 1 John 4. Then we conclude. You ought to be a thimble trying to carry the Pacific Ocean. That's the way I feel about these truths. This is so magnificent. Why do I have to be a thimble trying to bring it to you? If we just see a little of it, it's life transforming. Look what he says, verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation. They, they're consistent. Every time NIV translates it as atoning sacrifice, it is propitiation for our sins. Guess what God says? If you want to know the measure of my love, go to the cross. Where my son was given up to bear the wrath Do you, he bore himself. So, there's three great truths that I think you ought to anchor in your mind. Number one, propitiation, in contrast to the pagans, is the work of God himself. See, instead of getting here trying to get this God in a good mood, this God, the God that's been offended, he gave the Son and gave the sacrifice that could avenge his anger. We didn't bring the sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave up his son. God the Father knew the only thing that could avenge his anger towards your rebellion and your deserved hell was the death of his beloved son, and he gave him for you. Number one. Number two, propitiation was made by the death of Jesus Christ. And that's why Romans three twenty three through 27 ought to be memorized and stamped in your forehead if there's any central passage in the Bible on salvation it's Romans 3 though I was a sinner he made redemption and propitiation through the death of his son and by the blood of the son on the cross God has been propitiated the death of Christ our Passover lamb If we had time, we would look at Leviticus 16, where they had two goats and a bull that was killed on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. When they killed those goats, one they killed, the other they confessed the sins of the nation. And a man was appointed to take it into a land uninhabited. The first one died under the sentence of their sins. And it paid the price to let the scapegoat go free, which was the picture of the effects of this death, is he will bear your sins away, never to be used against you again. So in the death of Christ, my scapegoat, he both died in my place and became the scapegoat of God that has borne them away. So that I and every born again child of God, my sins have been taken far away because my substitute bore them. I don't bear them. God does not demand double penalty for the same crime. If Christ died for it, I don't have to die for it. Christ died for my sins. Has he died for yours? Have you accepted that? Is that what you're leaning on when you're dying? I see some of the saints sometimes uh, that they start scrambling when they're sick or whatever. I'm not sure if I, I'm going to make it. I hope it's well. I, wait, wait, wait. This is no time to be guessing. It's either Christ did it or He didn't because you can't cough up enough assurance in your dying moments to be sure you'll be there. You've got to rest solely and squarely in what Christ has done. Did He die as your propitiatory sacrifice he said he did finally uh, God manifest his righteousness in the death of Christ so that Romans 3 said he's free to justify men on the basis of the cross what could we uh, learn from this Uh, I'd say uh, two things I would say The hell that men and women will get who reject this sacrifice and this love might be best described by describing the hell Christ lived through on the cross. Oh, I know there's other verses of weeping, gnashing of teeth, and fire. But when you see Christ in his work of atoning and substitution for you, All the emotions and all of the agony he was experiencing like, I've been alienated from God, he's forsaken me. I feel abandoned, I feel surrounded by devouring forces that look like animals that want to consume me, like bulls that want to charge me. Uh, My mouth is parched, Uh, I feel alone. I feel like God is a million miles away from my situation. No one up there cares. I think that's one of the ultimate pictures about hell is going to be like. The abandonment of God. The alienation from the one we rejected. So much so that he gives us what we really ask for all of our life. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. And hell will be God's answer. I'll leave you alone forever. You'll never be bothered again. But I take hope in the gospel in this way. You might be the self righteous man that says, I don't need a substitute. God couldn't be angry with me. I pay my taxes, I'm good to my wife, I got a job. Uh, I, I, I give a little money once in a while to this or that cause. You may be full of uh, even religious deeds. Jesus told in Luke 18 about two men, one very religious and the other very sinful. And the religious man began to tell God he was a tither. He told God of all the good works. And, matter of fact, To even be in the same place of worship, he said, I thank you, God, I'm not like this guy. I am so glad I'm not like him. A publican, which meant a notorious sinner. This man over here, he can't even look up. It says he looks down. And nothing profound. He simply says, God, be propitious to me. King James translates it merciful, but the word is propitiation. Please be satisfied with me. Well, the cross is the only place where God could ever be satisfied towards you in the death of his son. And the Bible says that publican went home justified before God. Because God granted him mercy, no doubt, looking to the cross. And I say to you, the great message of the gospel is, God has given the only sacrifice that can avert divine wrath from coming on you. People say this is a pagan concept, but Ephesians 2.3 says, We were once objects of divine wrath. John 3:36 He that believeth on the Son of God has eternal life. He that does not abides beneath the wrath of God. Wrath is coming upon all humanity who dies in their sins without ever running to Christ, the only scapegoat, the only thing that could propitiate and satisfy the righteous claims of God. This is the core of our gospel. Our God has been satisfied fully in the death of His Son so that God took the sword of justice and He plunged it into the scabbard of mercy and that scabbard was the side of His Son on an old rugged cross. The sword of God's judgment against you, child of God, has forever been put away. You will never, never, taste of the wrath of God so long as you live because you're under the protective covering of Jesus Christ that's enough to make even a Baptist shout Amen Amen We want our brothers to prepare we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now what a time to celebrate after these truths that Christ my Lamb has propitiated the wrath of God against my sins.